0: That was the perfect song to set up our series and our message this morning. Uh, Man of Sorrows. The words of that song are so awesome. You need to find that again this week and put that in your playlist and listen to it several times uh, as you you reflect upon what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Our series, Villains and Heroes, will run all the way through Easter plus one week. So uh, prepare yourself mentally. We're going on a journey now. Talk about the good guys. And the bad guys uh, in the Easter story. And there's both. And it's sometimes when you see the characters, there's a few moments when I wonder if Peter's going to be a good guy or a bad guy. Well, I'll never deny you. I'll go with you to death. Jesus says you're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up. And the cock crows. Listen, in a little bit you'll be trying to chop a guy's head off. Uh, we, you're all over the map, man. And you don't know because he quits after that night. Walks away from from disciple making, from being a disciple, and it takes you a few days to figure out whether Peter's in or out, whether he's a good guy or or where where he's going to ultimately be a bad guy. You turn a few pages in your Bible and you realize he's really one of the good guys. He just went through a little moment right there, and I, I guess we can all relate to him because of that. We all have our weaknesses, we all have our moments where we struggle and we stumble and can't figure things out and wonder if God loves us and deny and doubt and fall and stumble around a little bit and then God encourages and maybe a brother puts an arm around us and somebody reaches out and loves us and we get our get our head straight and our heart straight and we can move forward and serve God the way He wants to and such will be such will be our series. Let me let me start right here. Uh, this man that you're looking at was an early American hero. Hero of the Revolutionary War, fought in the Battle of Ticonderoga, the Battle of Saratoga, and in the battle to push the British out of New York, played key roles in three of the great battles of the Revolutionary War, held the rank of Major General. Ben was a committed soldier known among the American troops for his patriotic zeal. His name and his reputation carried a lot of clout because one of his close friends also was a famous General. Uh, in early American history, George Washington. And their close friendship and their patriotic zeal, really, he was on a track for the top. During the Revolutionary War, something happened that forever changed this man. Ben saw five of his subordinates promoted over himself. He never got the big recognition for the three battles that he played a major part in. And that and watching his peers be promoted over him five times was such a blow to Ben's ego that it proved to be more than he could take. Because Ben never received the recognition he thought he deserved. Bitterness gripped his heart. Animosity gripped his soul. And and it wasn't long that he was uh, having secret negotiations with the British, our enemy, in those days. He agreed to turn over ultimately... and and betrayed the U.S. the colonists and deliver West Point, our our stronghold at West Point, now where we train our our elite uh, officers. Uh, He he was going to turn over West Point to the British in exchange for money and and a position in in the British uh, army. The plot was discovered, of course. Ben escaped to the British lines and went over to the other side. And in the story of our nation's history, the name Benedict Arnold is synonymous with betrayer. Now, you say to any American, you're Benedict Arnold, it means you're a betrayer, you're a traitor. you'd You'd sell us out. Human history, if you do some study of history, is stained over and over with stories of many famous betrayers. Uh, Guy Fawkes is one of them. And I'm going to challenge you a little bit. You, you may have seen this somewhere in recent newscasts or something or photos. You may have seen this mask and you wondered, what is that? What is this uh, creepy thing? It's made an appearance in several Hollywood movies. It's a Guy Fawkes mask. Guy Fawkes was the key conspirator in a uh, large, the single largest act of treason against the British government in history. Guy Fawkes. Uh, He played the key role in what is now called the Gunpowder Plot of 1605. Uh, Britain was being ruled by a man named King James. Does that sound familiar to any of you religious folks? Uh, Britain was being ruled by a guy named King James. They're a Protestant country. They've thrown off the oppression and the yoke of the Catholic Church ruling over the nations of Europe. They're a Protestant nation being led by their monarch, King James I of King James I of of England, where you get your King James Bible. He commissioned the the scholars to do it. And uh, uh, Fox was a high-ranking member of a Catholic. Uh, a radical Catholic terrorist group, which you would call them today. He was a Catholic and part of a group that decided they were going to kill King James and they were going to take back control of Great Britain. And the way they decided to do it is they smuggled 36 barrels of gunpowder underneath uh, the Parliament building, the House of Lords. Now, have any of you ever been to, to London and you've seen Parliament buildings sitting right there on the Thames River? And right behind it, just right up against it, is Westminster Abbey, the famous uh, church, cathedral. It's all right there on that little plot of land right on the river. So they smuggled 36 barrels of gunpowder under the basement of the House of Lords. And the goal was to wait till King James and the Lords went into Parliament. And they were going to ignite the gunpowder level. The Parliament building would not be there if this had succeeded in 1605. Westminster Abbey, all of this area would have been smashed. And King James would have been killed, but of course, they uncovered the plot. It was uncovered, and and Guy Fawkes uh, was hanged by the neck and then drawn and quartered for his betrayal of King James and his country, Great Britain. Even today, if you watch an Occupy, flip this slide, if you watch an Occupy Wall Street rally, or you see uh, some protest in the streets today in America or Europe, it's very likely you'll see this somewhere in the crowd, someone wearing a Guy Fawkes mask. It's become the modern symbol of anarchy. It's the modern symbol of overthrow the government, uh, down with the powers that be, and it's all connected to the gunpowder plot of 1605 and a man named Guy Fawkes, the single biggest Treasonest for Great Britain. How about Marcus Junius Brutus? Anybody recognize this name? He was involved in the biggest betrayal in Roman history. It was Brutus that collaborated with the conspirators for the assassination of Julius Caesar. He joined the Roman Senate... They had to get him on board before they could do it. And there's a reason why. They had to get Brutus on board and they got him finally on board. And they all agreed they would keep their swords, their knives hidden till the last moment. And they would pull them from their togas. And each man must stab Caesar at least once. That was their agreement. It would be all of us or none of us. They got Brutus to go along with them even though Many people, his, his mother uh, protested, his wife protested, and uh, they all savagely stabbed Caesar to death on the Senate floor. Famous painting. See Caesar dead over here on the left. And the senators all with their swords raised. Chairs are turned over. The throne has been toppled to the floor. Now, famous painting. The sinners are going out triumphant now. They, they've killed the tyrant The betrayal was so diabolical because Brutus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Many think, many think he was actually the biological son of Julius Caesar because Caesar's mistress was Brutus's mother. And Shakespeare uh, immortalized. In Shakespeare's Caesar, the famous last words, when Caesar sees Brutus there with his sword. Do you remember the words? Anybody know them? Et tu, Brut. You, tu, Brut. Even you, my son, Brutus. And in Caesar's play, he pulls the toga over his head because he can't bear to watch his own son stab the sword into his abdomen. You, too, Brutus? Seriously? My own son covers his face. The blow is struck. Now, betrayal is a very painful thing. It's real. I've listened to many stories sitting in living rooms in Europe. I've listened to many stories from Europeans who came out of communism where children informed against their parents and their parents were arrested. I've heard many stories where parents ratted out their Christian children and their children were arrested and persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. I've heard many, many stories about how the priests in Romania were implicated in the plot. Their parishioners would come and confess. And the priests would go and give the record to the communists of what they had confessed. And the police, secret police, would come and arrest Uh, the Christians after they had made their confession to their priests. I've heard stories how friends took information that was private and they used that information against their friends in order to gain favor with the powerful regime that was ruling the people. Betrayal is such a painful thing. We have to ask this morning, can betrayal be a part of God's purpose? Even in betrayal, can God have a purpose through the act of betrayal? I think before we're done this morning, you'll see the answer to that. The closing scenes of Jesus' ministry give us a definitive answer for this question. Maybe you've experienced betrayal and you're wondering, how could anything good ever happen through the betrayal that I've experienced in my life? Well, you'll have some hope this morning after maybe hearing the story of Jesus from this viewpoint, you'd be hard-pressed to find a betrayal more brutal, more heartless, more devious than the betrayal found in Mark chapter number 14 this morning. Uh, I've given you a few examples. There are many, many more, but none's as brutal and heartless as cruel as what you'll see in Mark chapter number 14. Because like Benedict Arnold, Judas Iscariot, Once had a fantastic reputation. Now, we live on the other side of history, so we don't really understand this, but do you understand way back then? Judas Iscariot was famous. He's one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He's one of the chosen twelve. When Jesus walked on water, he was there. When Jesus said, Here, divide the bread, the loaves, and the fishes to the five thousand, Judas was there participating in the miracle. When Jesus said, demons are subject unto your power, go two by two to the villages of Bethsaida and Chorazin and, and Capernaum. Go and, and, and minister to people. He went and he ministered to people. He had a fantastic resume. He was quite famous. A- a- and uh, like Benedict Arnold, the people looked at him and saw more of a hero. Certainly not the betrayer that we would see from this side of history. So let me kind of get that in your mind a little bit so you'll understand fully everyone was surprised everyone was completely shocked because jesus had personally chosen judas to follow him to be a disciple to be an apostle and he was there for three years 18 months at least but maybe the whole three years and apparently i'm just reading between the lines now because of the position he held We don't know really that any of the other apostles held a position, except Judas, for his uh, accounting skills, his finance skills, for his ability to handle money, because of his absolute integrity, they made him the treasurer uh, of the disciples, of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He was the treasurer for the ministry of Jesus Christ. I don't know if Christ appointed him or if his peers elected him, but either way, you still get to the same point. They all trusted him. He all had some skill in this. And when Jesus uttered the accusation to his disciples, one of you will betray me. Not one of his disciples looked at Judas and said, I knew it. I've just been waiting for you to say that. I knew it. It's Judas, isn't it? Wow, that? look at that slimy weasel. I've never felt comfortable with this guy being here in the room with the, Not one person said that. When Jesus said, well, one of you will betray me, no one pointed at Judas. They didn't suspect Judas in the least, as we would say in America. And the Oscar goes to Judas Iscariot. Who played his role so well that no one until the very moment of betrayal ever had an inkling that Judas would have been the one. Let me read from Mark 14 verse 18. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. He means one of you sitting at the table right now will Betray me. Verse 19, they begin to be sorrowful. Everybody was suddenly sad in the room. And they say to him one after the other, all the way around the room, they go, Is it I? None of them said, It's him, isn't it? No one pointed a finger. As a matter of fact, they were so convicted in that moment of their own weaknesses. And their own sinfulness. That in that moment, every man paused for a moment for self-reflection and said, Could it be me? Am I capable of turning my back on Jesus and walking away? Am I capable? Is it? Maybe it is within me. That gives you something to think about, doesn't it? Because we're not talking about a bunch of schmucks here. We're talking about the, the twelve Apostles who had walked with Jesus. Listen, if they could have a moment of self-reflection, then I'm going to ask you this morning, don't be too aloof. Let every one of us this morning search our own hearts and discern this morning, have we just been hanging out with believers? Flying under the radar of Christianity? Or have you ever personally put your trust in Jesus Christ And received Him as your Savior. This makes other Scriptures make sense. When Jesus was speaking in Matthew 7, this is what He said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. On that day, many people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast demons out in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Judas could say all of those things. Every one of those things. And other people will be able to say that too. And Jesus says this, And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not that he doesn't know your name. He means I never had a personal relationship with you as Savior and Lord of your life. I will say in that day, you're not part of my family. You're not part of my I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of lawlessness. I did a little research. Consider that roughly 2 million baby boys are born in America every year. Got the picture? About 2 million boys are born in America every year. Between 10 and 20 of those boys will be named Judas. Uh, I was stunned by this as I was researching that anybody would name their son Judas. Judah, beautiful name. Jude, beautiful name. But because of the history, none of us would ever use the form Judas. And I was shocked. 10 to 20 boys a year in America are named Judas. Now, according to the stats, and some of you who are better statisticians than me could figure out if this is significant, and I think it's very insignificant. That's one thousandth of one percent. So it's statistically, doesn't matter at all. But even though it's small, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in my office doing research, scratching my head, saying, what exactly were those 20 parents thinking? To name your son Judas, and people do it every year. Part of my research led me to Germany, because Germany has some very unique... Laws is a strong word, but it's, it's, it's kind of a civil obedience thing in Germany. In Germany, there are rules that must be observed when choosing the first name of your baby. Let me just give you three of them quickly. Product names or objects are not permitted as first names. You can't name your, your kid, you know, Coca-Cola Smith. Uh, you, ca- you, can't, you can't name your, your kid Costco McMurdo although it rolls off the tongue nicely. Uh, It's not allowed. You can't use product names for your first name. The the second rule is it has to be possible to determine the gender of the child by the first name. Now, in Germany, there is one exception to the rule, and that's the name Maria, which is a popular man's name. Klaus Maria Brende is a famous actor. You can use Maria, but you have to use a masculine name easily to distinguish a uh, masculine name with it if you use it. But first name must be gender-specific. you got to know when you look at the resume, whether you're, you can tell you're looking at a man's resume or a woman's resume. It may be discriminatory, but it's just the way the, the customs are, are there. And then they said, thirdly, to protect the child. In Germany, the name must not be degrading. You cannot name your son Sue in Germany. It cannot be degrading. And it cannot cause the child future harm. means you cannot name your son Cain, you cannot name your son Judas, or Adolf. Uh, There are rules now, because can you imagine trying to get a job? You remember our sermon from a few weeks ago, hi, I'm a con artist. I'm applying for the job of treasury for your company. Uh, Hi, my name is Jacob, I'm an embezzler, that's what my name means, and you see, it can cause them future harm. So, so it's, not, it's not allowed. The name uh, Judah, Judas. Judas is a, a form of the word Judah, which was one of the 12 tribes of Israel in the south. And, and Judah has a beautiful meaning. The name Judas has a beautiful meaning. It means a life of praise. It's a very common name in Israel. People who were from Judah, the tribe, you'll find many Judas is in the, in the registry of names. It was like, it's, like, it's like Bob or Bill or John. It was very common from the tribe of Judah to be a, Jude, a Judas, uh, uh, one of these names. So it means a life of praise. Well, that's easy to figure out. Uh, his father's name is given in the Bible, Simon Iscariot. And when Simon and his wife held that beautiful baby boy in their arms... And they named him Judas, although you get a little shiver when you hear that. In that day, what they meant is, here's our little baby boy. We're going to name him a life of praise. We have such high aspirations and dreams for our little man. Uh, His life is going to bring praise to God. You know, it was a little bit later in the story. Where Jesus calls Judas by another name. Jesus Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. The, The Greek word perdition means ruined, wasted, lost, damnation. The parents said, We want his life to be a life of praise. Jesus said, Let me write his epitaph. His life was a complete waste, utter loss, utter destruction. What his parents intended, it ended up being 180 degrees different than what their dreams and hopes for their little boy had become. I want to just say this morning that what becomes of your life will be determined by your decisions. And specifically by your decision about what you do with Jesus Christ. You must know from the scripture that God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. He wants you to become a believer and establish that relationship with his son Jesus Christ. And then he wants you to move from being a believer to being a disciple. And then he wants you to, to engage in that mission. And he wants you to one day, one day in the future for us, his next step for us is to rule in the kingdom of God. Y'all are still in kindergarten. We're still in kindergarten right now. We're just getting ready for the big, the big job he's got for us. We've been charged with making disciples. Now, let's do a good job, okay? Let's bring people into the kingdom because one day you're going to be a ruler in that kingdom that you're helping to build right now. And I just want to say when studying Judas' life, here's what I'm reminded of. God's done his part. God's made his decision. Here's his decision. I'm long-suffering, not willing that any person should perish, but that all should come to repentance and put their faith in my son Jesus Christ. That's God's decision. Now the ball's in your court. God's done his part. You'll decide whether you will live a wasted life or whether you will live a life of praise that will bring honor and glory to God. As you study the life of Judas, one phrase keeps showing up over and over again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and all of these gospel narratives which I've blended together this morning one phrase keeps showing up eight times. Eight times connected to Judas, the phrase shows up, this phrase, one of the 12. One of the 12. It's almost like every gospel writer is trying to really get your attention eight times and say to you, this isn't a random dude. One of the 12. Now, Mark is just a kid, and I'd love to tell you Mark's story later. He's just a kid who snuck out at night and snuck down to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not one of the apostles. He snuck out of his house. Mom probably doesn't know he's gone. And he's he's just got his pajamas on, basically. And he snuck down to the Garden of Gethsemane to see everything unfolding. And Mark then later wrote the Gospel of Mark. Let me give it to you from Mark's eyes as he remembers it. And immediately, while Jesus was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. I want you to see Mark hiding behind a tree peering through the darkness of the night in Gethsemane. Now the betrayer arrives. We don't know who it is. Still, he pulls back his hoodie to reveal his face, but it's dark. You can't see through the night. Finally, a torch illuminates the villain's face and Mark says, Holy mackerel! It's one of the twelve! Holy cow! It's one of the good guys. He's not a good guy after all. It's one of us. And all of the Gospel writers write it in this fashion. Showing how shocked and how saddened they were that their brother, their confidant, their friend turned out to be the traitor. And quite frankly, they were baffled. You can see it in their writing. They're baffled how someone who saw what Judas saw, someone who felt what Judas felt, someone who was a part of what Judas was a part of, someone who who was there and heard what Judas heard could have a part in nailing Jesus Christ to an executioner's cross. The writers just can't hardly comprehend it. So they're saying, it's one of the twelve. Can you believe it? The big question, one of the big questions in this narrative is what triggered the treachery? Listen, if you're going to do something like this, some act of betrayal or some life-changing event, something became a trigger. Something calls to this. Now, it could have built up over time, but there was something then that made you go snap. Does that make sense? What triggered Judas's treachery. Well, there is an answer in the Scripture. Maybe you've never seen it. Something happened 48 hours before the betrayal. Something happened, an event that's recorded very clearly in Scripture, that was the triggering event for Judas Iscariot. For sake of time this morning, let me read it from John's Gospel, because John gets right to the names of the players. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, John now adds the one who was about to betray him, Judas said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This should have been put into the offering. He should have put it right here into the money bag. This was Chanel number 5. It's crazy expensive. A year's salary she wasted right here in this one spilling out of ointment upon Jesus. That should have been put into the treasury. We could have given it to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor hindsight now but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it yeah the great skilled treasurer cooked the books and he used to skim a little here and skim a little there and skim a little there Judas says, why are you, Mary, stop immediately. Cork that bottle. This is crazy expensive. Let's put that money into the offering bag right here. And Jesus says, verse number 7, leave her alone. Shut your mouth, Judas. Hands off. Back up. Back up, buddy. Leave her alone. In Matthew, Jesus said, for she has done a beautiful thing for me. No one else had the foresight to anoint me for my burial coming tomorrow or 48 hours from now. But she did. Back up, Buster. Let her alone. Now, let me be very clear with what I'm saying. The woman was Mary, a very close friend of Jesus and a female disciple. You've heard me speak of this. The man who lambasted and railed against Mary is Judas the villain. And when Judas began to denigrate her and denounce her, what did Jesus do? Fix this in your heart. He defended her. He checked Judas publicly, rebuked him, said, Shut your mouth. Leave her alone. Don't you put a hand on her. What she's doing is beautiful. Let it stand. That reprimand, right there, that reprimand and that praising of Mary over him, Jesus continuing to talk about, she's anointed me to my death. He keeps talking about his impending death. Something snapped inside of Judas. He said, I'm wasting my time and my talent with these hicks from Galilee. I've backed the wrong candidate for the throne. My skills are not appreciated in this group of people. I'm going to go over to the Pharisees. They'll see my potential. They'll see my talent. They'll see my skills. And they'll reward me. They'll give me a position. They'll respect me. They won't talk to me like Jesus just talked to me. What did Judas gain with his act of betrayal? We know now, now, now we know that Judas was following Jesus for personal gain. Judas was following Jesus as a resume builder. Does that make sense? He was seeking to gain some status, promotion, and wealth. To Judas... When he heard of a coming Messiah who would take the throne of Israel, he saw a change in governments, a change in regimes, that Jesus would be the one to sit on the throne of Israel. And now Judah said, I'm going to connect myself to this campaign. Absolutely. Jesus said, You follow me. He said, absolutely I'll follow you because this is such a resume. Built. Listen, I'm on the ground floor here. I'm on the ground floor with these 12 other guys and they're not as sharp as me. I'll get ahead of these other 12 and I'll have me some key, key government position when this thing is all done. See, see all of the disciples misunderstood a little bit, every one of them. And they were constantly talking about what positions they would have in the coming kingdom cabinet. Do you remember this? They're always talking about who's going to sit here and who's going to be the prime minister, who's going to be, who's going to be the secretary of war and the secretary of the treasury. They're always trying to figure that out. Even the mother of James and John got in on the act and came to Jesus and said, in your kingdom, would you have my son sit on the right and the left hand of your high office, please? Everybody's jockeying for a position, but being motivated by personal advancement. And personal gain was running counter to everything Jesus kept trying to teach them. They were talking about this even up till the upper room. That night he was betrayed when Jesus got on his knees and washed their feet. And they were aghast. And he said, I'm trying to show you guys don't worry about the positions. That'll come later. Who will be the servant will be your leader. It's not about how many people Serve you. It's about how many people you can serve. You know what our model is at Cornerstone? You want to be great here in our ministry? Serve people. Love people. Invest your life in the lives of people. It's not about how many people serve you in the org chart. Flip the org chart upside down. It's about how many people can you serve. That's where your heart should be. And so, so Jesus constantly emphasizing loyalty to his disciples, would often say things like this to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus also kept reminding everyone that everyone who was following him was not a believer. Everyone who's here is not a believer. Jesus would say that all the time. Now imagine when the room got small and only the 12 guys were there. And Jesus would say something like this. I'm reading John six sixty four, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Now, I want ask you a question. You're not Jesus, but if you were Jesus and you knew for three years that the guy standing beside you was going to stick a knife in your back, how hard would it be to wash his feet? How hard would it be to kneel beside him and pray? How hard would it be? You understand what I said, cook dinner for that guy? How hard would it be to love that guy? You, You want to talk about a role model. Here's a role model of love right here. Jesus had that knowledge and still ministered love to this man, Judas. So in a small room, Jesus said, you don't all believe. Watch what Peter does. Watch this. Watch Peter go nuts. His head explodes. Peter's like, "What? What are you talking about, Jesus? Do I have to remind you, Jesus? We all believe in this room. Watch it, watch it, watch it. John 6:69. 6, Peter says, "We have believed. What are you talking about? We've come to know that you are the Holy One of God." Jesus answered and said, "Did I not choose you 12?" And yet one of you is a devil. This he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was, watch the phrase, one of the twelve who was going to betray him. When Jesus told the disciples that he was going to be betrayed and killed, finally something snapped in Judas after being reprimanded. And Judas said, you know what, after rebuking me and embarrassing me, I'll tell you who's going to sell you out, me. I'm the man to do it. If I can't get fame and fortune, it looks like this ministry is going down in flames if you're going to die. This is going nowhere. If I can't get fame and fortune from your administration, then I'll go to the existing administration and I'll rat you out to them and I'll get some money and I'll get some position and they'll respect me. Now let's pick up the scene one more time and I'll show you how powerful this is. Here's Mary anointing Jesus. Matthew 26 verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world what she has done will also be told as a memory a memorial for her. Leave her alone Judas. She's going to be famous. That's exactly what I want. Leave her alone, Judas. She's going to be eternally rewarded. That's what I wanted. Leave her alone, Judas. History's going to remember her beautifully, fondly, wonderfully. She's a hero. Judas says, that's what I want. So what happened immediately after the anointing? Well, here's what happened. Matthew 26, verse 14. Watch this first word. Then, then, just after Jesus chewed him out, just after Jesus praised Mary for her act, and just after Jesus told them, stand down, I'm going to die, and she realizes it, then, it's all about to happen now, isn't it? Then, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, And said, you want an inside guy? I'm your man. You want somebody who knows? I know. You want somebody who's connected? I'm connected. You want a spy? I'm your spy in the campaign. You want a guy on the inside? I'm your secret agent. What will you give me? You understand the motives now? If I deliver him to you. And they said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's hard to translate that into our modern economic values. But 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave in that day. I'll give you what it would cost to buy a man, to buy a slave in the Roman Empire. 30 pieces of silver. Uh, Not too much, actually. I went to an organization to try to find the answer. There's an organization that exists right now called Free the Slaves. And I researched what the price of a slave is right now where slaves are bought and sold in our own world today, the price of a slave, the going price, is $90. Not $90 will purchase a slave in our world this morning. Not too much money, is it? Not too much money. Do you want a sex slave? 2000 to $4,000 is what they're going for on the world market right now. Not too much money, is it, for a life? My point is... When when the scribes and Pharisees said to Judas, Here, let us cut you a cheque for ninety bucks. Here, here's thirty pieces. So don't think that's a bag of fortune. That's not even going to pay his rent but for one month on his house. It's one month's maybe salary to them. Here's Here's a little money. Well, what I'm saying is Judas just sold his soul for ninety bucks. Have some respect, ladies and gentlemen. What's your soul worth? It's worth more than your next promotion. It's worth more than your popularity. It's worth more than 15 minutes of fame. It's worth more than a soundbite. It's worth more than a byline in human history. But the Scripture says in verse 16, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And that opportunity was about to come now in just a few hours. The whole deed will be done less than 48 hours from the anointing of Jesus, which brings us to the method of his betrayal, the villain's kiss. Matthew 26, verse 47. Jesus is in the garden. He's awoken the disciples now several times. He stands there in the middle of the d- disciples and while he was speaking, Judas came, watch the phrase, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss, that's the man, sees him don't let him slip through your fingers he's slippery they've been trying to get him for three years and nobody could get their hands on him much less get him down to the Antonio Fortress in chains when I kiss him you better be quick and he's powerful you better seize him and he came up to Jesus at once he walked right up to Jesus can you imagine the Gaul? walked right up to Jesus greetings rabbi And he kissed Jesus. Now, I want to clue you into a few things. The word kissed in the Greek is much more than simple kiss in this phrase. The word in the Greek is katafaleo. It means to kiss much, to kiss again. This wasn't... That's the guy. This was... Been to France lately? Uh, This is. This is exaggerated, overacted, overplayed to kiss often and frequently. wasn't a kiss. It was a moment of kisses. Now the actor is overacting. Greetings, Rabbi. Are y'all seeing this back there? Is anybody watching? Get your swords ready. I'm going to be done here in a minute, you know. And while he's repeatedly kissing Jesus, they're reaching for their swords and they're moving in for the killed. Think about this. What should be to us a sign of affection, a act of friendship, was in one act turned inside out and upside down. The villain's kiss meant anything but friendship and love. It meant betrayal. It meant payoff. And ultimately it meant murder. This was the kiss of death. Now, before you think that's bad, it gets more diabolical than that. For we now read in Luke 22, looking at the other gospel, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. Focus right here for a moment. Satan has already entered into Judas Iscariot. Jesus is God in a man's body. Do you get that? At this moment... Judas is possessed. Not by a third-rate demon, Satan has entered into the man. When Judas kisses Jesus, Satan's putting his lips on Jesus' cheek. We got you now, boy. You thought you were going to get out of this, didn't you? I heard your prayer in the garden. No, it ain't going to pass from you you going down in the morning, buddy. Satan was kissing Jesus. It don't get any slimier than that. It don't get any sneakier than that. There's no betrayal quite like the taunting act of the one cast out of heaven putting his lips on the Son of God. Can you see the gleam in his eyes? And the possessed look of Judas' eyes as he looks over at Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus said? Friend, do what you came to do. (laughs) Come on. I've been praying. I'm ready now. I'm strengthened by the Father. I'm ready now. Bring it on. Do what you came to do. This is like the gunfight at the OK Corral right here. This is like the big showdown. Now let me ask you a question. You've painted a picture in your mind of the arrest of Jesus. Don't say out loud, how many soldiers have come to get him? How many men does it take to arrest Jesus Christ? Think about it. You say, well, we don't know. We do know. Because John, when he wrote about this, used very precise language to describe the betrayal scene. Let me read it. John 18, 3. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. They went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Focus on this word. Having procured a band. A band of soldiers is a specific word in the Greek language, spira, meaning a cohort of a Roman legion. A Roman legion is six Thousand skilled fighting men. 6,000 is a legion. A cohort is a tenth. Ten cohorts make up a legion. <clears throat> a band of soldiers is 600 men. Was that the picture you painted in your mind? John said a band of Roman soldiers came out of the Antonio Fortress. 600 skilled fighting men, armed to the teeth, weapons ready, thirsty for blood, just waiting for someone to draw a sword. And it would be a bloodbath on the slopes of Mount Olivet in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen, there's nothing polite or peaceful about this moment. It's not just the 600 soldiers and the police force from the Pharisees and scribes on top of that. You've got the civil religious police. Added to 600 Roman soldiers. The Garden of Gethsemane is not huge. Do you understand what happened? It's dark o'clock. There are no street lights. There's no flashlight app on your iPhone. So with torches, they go out into the dark night looking through the bushes. Soldier, arm's width from soldier, arm's width from soldier, arm's width from soldier. They come out of Jerusalem and like a human net, they sweep in towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas says, when I kiss him, you better grab him because he slipped out of our grasp before. My question to you this morning is, why so many? Why so many the only answer I can give to you this morning is because Jesus has the greatest power in the whole universe. And when He walked the earth, He healed the sick, He raised the dead, He cast out demons, He walked on water, He calmed the storm, He turned the water into wine. I mean, He, he gave, the blind can see and deaf can hear. And He defied everything you know about the natural law. Satan was terrified of Jesus Christ. And for good reason. That's why. That's why Satan inspired Herod to send the military down there and kill every baby boy in Bethlehem 33 years earlier. Because he wanted to get rid of God's Son. And when that failed, then Satan inspired every other plot he could inspire. Then Satan inspired the religious uh, people to kill him. He took him into the wilderness and seduced him and attempted to seduce him with temptations. And that failed. He inspired the the angry and the jealous of the scribes and Pharisees to to kill him. And, And when that didn't happen, now Satan said, all right, I've got another shot. It looks like a Judas has come over to my side. Got another shot now. I'll just inhabit him. And it seems that the devil was worried, even on this night, that once again Jesus would slip the net. So Satan inspired every soldier to come out of the Antonio Fortress and all the police force from the uh, religious police and they flooded the area. Far too many soldiers are standing in the Garden of Gethsemane to capture just one individual unless that one individual happens to be the Son of God. And then really, I want you to know, 600 wouldn't be enough. Because in a minute Peter pulls a sword and Jesus says, Don't you think I could call 12 legions of angels right now? And we could blow these guys right off the map. Stand down, Peter. Puts the ear back on the guy. And the disciples all scattered. Let me read it to you. And Jesus said, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Not my will be done Father. but let, let the Bible, let the prophets. Have you read Isaiah 53? Let the prophets be fulfilled. It's my night. It's my time to be beaten and die. Let the scripture be fulfilled. Notice verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Speaking of his disciples. Now in your mind, paint the picture Jesus stands alone in the darkness as strong and brutal hands with cruel intentions reach out and take him. Not that he couldn't have resisted, but let the scriptures be fulfilled, he said. Let the Father's will be done now. You mean it for evil. Watch what God does though. Watch what God's going to do. Let the scripture be fulfilled. Take me. It's my time. And they drag him to his trial. Now, the clock's not my friend, so let me bring it to an end. I'm going to read you a passage from Matthew 27. Then Judas, his betrayer, he saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. And he brought the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests there in the temple courtyard. And he said, I want to give the money back I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. You know what these religious leaders said? Drop dead. Who cares? What is that to us? What do we care that innocent blood's been? But what is that to us? You see to that. And he threw the money down into the temple. And he went out and hanged himself. Now, let me just give you some lessons you need to learn from the story this morning as I close. Was Judas simply a victim? Could Satan as easily have inhabited Peter or John? The theological answer is no. And the reason the answer is no is because Peter and John weren't opening their heart to Satan to allow him to work in their life. Judas had. Judas was open to betrayal, He was contemplating betrayal. And what Judas wanted to do, Satan simply stepped in and said, well, let me help you out, buddy. I can make the connections. You want to meet the chief priest? I'll get you in a place. Judas, I mean, it's almost like Satan just said, well, here, let me make it easy for you to do it. What you desire to do, I'll step in and empower that. Judas made his decision. And you and I will have to make our decisions, too. Second lesson you should learn is even in betrayal, God can accomplish his purposes. It was true in the life of Christ because what they all meant for evil, what Satan meant for evil in getting Jesus Christ to an executioner's cross, God said, you've played right into my hand because I sent my son into the world to die for the sins of all men. You've played right into my hand. Yes, it was tragic, but it was part of God's plan. What Satan meant for evil, God said, I've turned this for good, for glory, and for the salvation of every man, woman, and child. Let me say, another lesson I learned is no abilities or position can substitute for conversion. I wonder how many millions of people on planet Earth right now are depending on their baptism or their church membership to get them to heaven. I wonder how many millions of people who call themselves Christians are are trusting in their family pedigree or their Christian reputation or some gift they have given or some talent they possess to get them into heaven. You should be asking yourself this morning, have I truly been born again? Because unless we're born again, we will not see the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. John chapter number 3. Matter of fact, Jesus wrote Judas' epitaph. Here's what he wrote. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Here's his epitaph written on his headstone. It would have been better for this man if he had never been born. You say, well, that's tragic. Let me just say to you, the same epitaph is true for anyone who does not believe the gospel of grace and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's a coming day when you will experience the judgment of God and you'll say it had been better if I had never been born than to come to this place. Amen. Let me give you another lesson that I learned from this because Judas later came and said, I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood, but remorse is different than repentance. Please don't tune me out right here at the end. Remorse is different than repentance. Judas had remorse He said, I've sinned and I'm sorry now for what I did. But Judas never came to the act of repentance. He never turned to Christ and asked for Christ's forgiveness and salvation. Let me ask you a question. It's not written in the scripture, but knowing what you know about Jesus and knowing what you know about a sermon I preached two weeks ago about the thief on the cross, let me just ask you a hypothetical uh, question. Let me ask your opinion on this even after Judas had betrayed Jesus, if Judas had run to the cross tomorrow morning, if Judas had thrown that money down and he had run out the Damascus Gate and run over to Skull Mountain and threw himself down at the feet of Jesus while he's hanging on the cross and said, Jesus, I've committed terrible sins. Agreed. Pride. Betrayal. God, I've done so many bad things. Jesus, would You please forgive me? I plead for Your mercy. Do you think that even then Jesus would have said, I'll see you in paradise? I do. Because there's no type of sin that is too big for forgiveness. The only thing that's going to truly condemn you is to reject Jesus Christ and not accept the cure for your sin. And the reason I believe this is because the Scripture says there's no sin so great but that the grace of God is not greater still. Paul said where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Modern English would be show me a mountain of sin and I will show you an ocean of God's grace that will completely immerse that sin in God's forgiveness. Let me make it a little more personal. Whatever the sins of your past are, Whatever the sins are that are haunting you, whatever sins are causing you to live a life of regret and remorse, stop it. You don't have to live a life of remorse and regret. Instead, repent. And turn to Jesus Christ and say, forgive me of this sin that haunts me. God, I give this sin that's haunting me over to you. Please cover this in your blood and in your grace and give me forgiveness. See, Jesus didn't come to die for some of your sins. He came to die for all of your sins. Think about the worst one. Even that one. Which one haunts you? Even that one. Is there any other one hanging out there? Even that one. That's what the grace of God is all about. Now let me put the wheels on the ground right here. Let's end on a positive note. They came out with 600 armed soldiers to arrest a carpenter. Standing alone now with no one around. Let's go. Let the scripture be fulfilled. How Did he do it? Here's what I want to say to you. You should be thrilled this morning, child of God. You should be thrilled that the same power of God that flowed through Jesus Christ now flows through you and through me. You should be absolutely thrilled this morning that the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus Christ during His earthly ministry That same Holy Spirit now rests inside of you to help you fulfill the ministry that God's called you to fulfill. Jesus said the same works that I would do, you will do. Why? Because you've got the same God living in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said even greater works will you do than I have done. Does that sound true about your life? Are you doing the great works of God and maybe even greater works Jesus made Twelve disciples. He made more, but let me use that number. He only had three years. Some of you have 30, 50, 60, or 70 years to go. You could do greater works even than these because the same power of God rests in you. Let me say it this way. Anytime the devil tries to insinuate to you That you're not a serious risk, a serious threat to be reckoned with in the spiritual world. You as a child of God need to rise up and remind Satan of who you are. You may have to get alone somewhere and shut the door and say, Buddy, let me remind you of something. Greater is He that's in me. You kissed Him. You killed Him. He rose again. Take it. Deal with it. He lives inside of me. Greater is He that's in me. He's already whipped you once. He is victorious and He lives in me. I stand here to remind you that the power that raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago, do you believe that? That He was raised from the dead? If so, the power that raised Him from the dead lives in you. If you're a child of God this morning. Don't you be defeated. Don't you be cowardly. Don't you be scared. Square your shoulders. Listen, we're going to get attacked. Hello? Square your shoulders. And look across the room. And you say to Satan, back down, buddy. Stand down. In the name, not in the name of in the name of Jesus Christ. Checkmate. you got to back down. I belong To Him. That's some good news for this week, isn't it? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let's make a decision before we go to the house. You've got a lot to think about this morning. Many of you are searching your soul right now to see if you're in the faith or not. Those of you who are in the faith need to be searching your soul to see if you're on the mission or not. He didn't save you to come to church 52 times a year. He saved you to get on the mission and do greater works than he did the work of making disciples bringing honor to God by adding to the kingdom of God I'm going to ask every Christian here this morning maybe Satan's been really dishing it to you I know some of you lost your jobs we had two or three church members diagnosed with cancer just in the last space of some weeks listen, Satan's going to do everything he can to disrupt that's his game that's what he does turn brother against brother and sister against sister father against mother the scripture is very clear i'm going to ask god's people this morning to get down on their knees for a moment and you just open your heart to god maybe you need to come and kneel at this altar just slip out of your seat and come and find your place and say god this morning what i need is i need a fresh anointing of the power of almighty god upon my life i felt a little defeated i felt a little discouraged Maybe you're praying for a son or a daughter, a mother or a father or a friend who's going through some hard time. Pray down the power of God on them this morning. The same power that rested on Christ. Ask God to help you this morning. Greater is He that's in you. Claim it. Acknowledge it. Very quietly, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. If you need to make a move this morning, join the church or schedule a baptism or whatever you need to do. We have people here to help you. While Christians are praying this morning, let me speak to any unsaved. Just very quietly here with our heads bowed and eyes closed. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, maybe you've been keeping the company of saved people. Maybe you're a faithful church. Hopefully you see this morning that's not the same thing is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He knew Christ. He wasn't saved. If you've never received Christ, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to ask you to do just one thing to help me. I'm going to ask you just to slip up a hand and say, Pastor, I need to receive Christ this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you do anything. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to know who's going to pray when I pray. You just slip a hand up very quietly and just say, that's me, Pastor. I I need to receive Christ as my Savior. I want you to pray just like this. Say, God, I cry out to you this morning as a sinner needing a Savior. God, I understand that I can't save myself. I have no good works and no merit. But this morning, I'm looking only to Jesus Christ for my salvation. God, I'm going to ask you this morning to forgive me of my sins, all of them, past, present, and future. God, I'm going to ask you to put them all under the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and cover them, and wash them, and wash my heart and my soul clean this morning. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge you're the Son of God. I honor you this morning as the one who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried and rose again to be my Savior. Lord Jesus, I open my heart and my life and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Lord, my goal is to live for you now and I'm going to need your help, so fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning. Cause me to turn from my sin and walk in your ways. God, my life is yours. I'm bought with a price now. God, I pray that you'd make me a disciple. And put me on your mission. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer. You have a decision. You come and share it with someone. Listen. Every, every Christian at some time. Is going to say to Jesus. Lord is it I? Don't really know what we're all capable of. But this morning be encouraged. Whatever your sin, His grace is greater than all your sin. You can't out His grace. I'm not suggesting you try, but you can't. He could even save a betrayer. And just to prove it, He turns His head on the cross and says to the thief, Today, today I'll see you in paradise. The power of God rests on you.